Hi, this is Steve Weinberger, CEO of Clearwater Jazz Holiday Foundation, and you are listening to the Young Lions Jazz Master Virtual Sessions podcast brought to you by our friends at Marine Max Clearwater. This episode was recorded March 30th, 2021. It is our wonderful education partner, Brandon Robertson, doing one of our What I Love About series sessions on the great Paul Chambers. Brandon is the Director of Jazz Studies at Florida Gulf Coast University in Fort Myers, Florida. But we also have an episode sponsor for this session, Tom Nurse. Big shout out to Tom. Tom is a special part of our lead operation volunteer team called the Jazz Force. And Tom has been heading up our stage crew at Clearwater Jazz Holiday Music Festival for over 30 years. He's also a longtime member of our organization's board of directors. Tom loves the music, loves the festival tradition, but perhaps most of all, he loves the education mission of Clearwater Jazz Holiday. Thank you, Tom, for all you do for Clearwater Jazz Holiday. We love you. To become an episode sponsor and support Clearwater Jazz Holiday Foundation, go to the studio at clearwaterjazz.com education and scroll down to adopt a session. Thank you also for watching and listening to these sessions, and we hope everyone enjoys this episode, What I Love About Paul Chambers with Brandon Robertson. Well, good morning and welcome to another Clearwater Jazz Holiday Foundation's Young Line Jazz Virtual Sessions. I am your guest host today, Michael Cronodal. And you're in for a treat because today's educator is Brandon Robertson. And the topic is what I love about Paul Chambers. Uh, this is part of our what, of, what I love about series where educators and professionals take a deep dive into musicians that have inspired or influenced their journey with jazz. So we're really looking forward to this. Uh, our last session with uh, Professor Robertson was uh, records all rhythm players should have. That was an awesome one. I really enjoyed that one. We compared our list of favorite recordings. Hopefully you got a lot out of that. And I just remind you, you know, as you come in today, uh, if you have any questions, please go into that chat feature, type them out. And we'll make sure we save some time to answer any of those questions at the end. And uh, also check out our free sessions that's coming up at www.clearwaterjazz.com education. And of course, we always appreciate your feedback on any future sessions. Uh, you know, just email us at info at clearwaterjazz.com if you like to suggest something. And also, please be sure to check out the studio archives of the past videos at clearwaterjazz.com education and outreach section. It's brought to you by Blue Water Wealth Management at Stewart Partners and Duke Energy, as well as our Young Lines podcast available wherever you stream. That's brought to you by our friends at Marine Max Clearwater. And you can search Young Lions Jazz Master Virtual Sessions wherever you stream. Of course, Brandon is not a visitor here or a stranger with Clearwater Jazz, but I just want to tell you a couple amazing things. Uh, that this young man is doing. <laughs> Brandon Robertson is an Emmy-nominated music director, professional upright and electric bassist, composer, and music educator originally from Tampa, 
Florida. He completed his Bachelor's of Arts in Music from Florida State University in 2009 and a Master's of Music in Jazz Studies in the spring 2016. Currently, Brandon is Director of Jazz Studies and Director of FGCU Basketball Band at Florida Gulf Coast University in Fort Myers, Florida. In 2018, Brandon was nominated for the Emmy Award for Best Documentary uh, for Educational Collegiate Programs featuring the FGCU Jazz Ensemble. You guys are really busy down there in Fort Myers, I see. Yeah, <laughs> and as a private, absolutely, as a private band leader, Brandon has taken his band on multiple national tours, headlining at some of the top jazz venues in the country. So we know he knows what he's talking about. Is He has an impressive resume. Uh, he's performed with the world-famous Count Basie Orchestra, led by Scotty Barnhart, uh, vocalist Carmen Bradford, Jason Marcellus, Marcus Roberts, Marty Burrell, and the list goes on and even includes Wyclef Gordon. He's been featured oh, as a performer and a band leader of various national jazz festivals. And recently, and I have to say recently, he released his first debut album entitled Based on a true story in the fall of 2019, which reached all the way up to number 16 on iTunes 200 release. Professor, the stage is all yours. Do I really have to follow that? I mean, you, Absolutely. you, you, you pretty much like said it all, so I don't have to say any more. You know, I don't have to say anything really. You know, you, you, you kind of just said it all in, in, one, in one take. So as usual, Michael, I appreciate you. And to everybody at the Clearwater Jazz Foundation, uh, I love you guys to death. And it's always a pleasure to come and, you know, do do these sessions and also to educate. That's the whole purpose of these videos is to educate. And so for today, I'm very excited because I get to switch it up. Usually when I'm in these kind of settings, I'm doing something where I'm, I'm doing something instructional. I'm, I'm teaching something. But today, I get to actually be a fan and just fan out and, and, and talk to you all about who I actually appreciate and somebody that I love really dearly. Um, there are a multitude of bass players throughout jazz history that people know about. We know about Ron Carter, Ray Brown, Sam Jones, even our local legend there in the St. Pete area, Mr. John Lamb, who, who performed and played with Duke Ellington. Um, we have all these bass players that throughout history have had a staple. They've done something that has significantly significantly changed and impact not only jazz, but music in general. And so I have what I like to call my top cream of the crop list of bass players that not only have had a huge influence on my life, in my playing, but also sonically has changed the way I approach the instrument, how I approach playing bass. And so for today, uh, what I love about series, I would like to talk about the GOAT. Now, if there are any basketball fans that are watching this later, we all know that everybody says that Michael Jordan is one of the greatest uh, legends of all time that played in the NBA. And he was deemed this nickname the GOAT, the greatest of all time. And so that meaning can mean anything, any kind of attachment you put it to. But in this case, I'm going to tell you why Paul Chambers 
bassist and composer and band leader is the reason why he's the GOAT to me. Now, Paul Chambers, we're gonna go shift gears here. Let's move over to this next slide here. Now, Paul Chambers, uh, originally born, is a Philly, born out of Pittsburgh, uh, April 22nd, 1935. And so, as a young man, you know, Paul, from my readings, he definitely was into a lot of soul music at the in this era, uh, later on in his teenage years. But earlier, a lot of it was swing music. Um, he came up in that era where you had players like Jimmy Blanton, um, you had guys like Milt, uh, Milt Hinton, these bass players who were on the scene that people were starting to hear about. Uh, Curly Russell, Tommy Porter, who would later, then essentially, and eventually Oscar Pettiford, who would then transition into the bebop era, where uh, uh, where Paul Chambers would get a lot of his influences, and he was very lucky enough that when he was a teenager, he or earlier in his early childhood, he was exposed to a lot of instruments. So he actually first learned how to play the Barry saxophone and the tuba before picking up the double bass in high school at the age of 14 and he did there is a quote out uh that i read in a jazz article that he really enjoyed the the luxury and the sounds of the horn which would make a lot of sense because whenever i listen to paul chambers i hear that influence i hear how the way he plays stylistically it's a, it's an influence of of somewhere where it, it, it has this flow and everything is it's, it flows so you can tell that he's he has studied a lot of aerophonic instruments and understands the the nature of how it's supposed to connect so he's figured out a way to make his bass lines like that and so I think him playing Barry saxophone might have helped the dexterity of not only his fingers but the way he hears lines and phrases but then playing tuba having a very strong ear on the low end to really be melodic on the lower register of the upright bass because that's very hard to do and make it sound in tune um, he attended the notable cast tech high school in detroit and when he moved to detroit you know that scene at this time frame was in the 50s so now or late 40s early 50s now you have this emergence of r&b music and so he's probably in this era where now he has the emergence of Ray Charles, uh, Checker, uh, um, uh, 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 man, what's this gentleman? I can't remember. This name is going to blank off the top of my head. There was all these R&B artists that were starting to emerge in the, in the 50s. And so this sound of the Detroit era that was coming through in this high school, particularly Paul Chambers was exposed to this. And he understood that having that kind of kind of, that kind of sound in, in the back of his ear helped him play other influences within the idiom that he was trying out. So originally he wanted to be classic. He wanted to be a classical bassist. He performed in the Detroit String Band, which was kind of like a youth symphony band uh, orchestra, and he studied classical music with the principal bassist from the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, which again would make sense why he was really he had a lot of clarity and a, a lot of control in his arco playing and he played on a and a, a juzak which is which is a very which is a very abnormally large bass and so as tall as he was he probably was tall enough to actually play and handle that size bass and really get a big 
tone. But one of the secrets to Paul Chambers playing is the strings that he used. He used gut strings. And so when you arco on gut strings, it gives it this nice grass, rasp, a brashy, like percussive sound, which he figured out a way to utilize that and make it work. And if, for those bass players out there that know, if you play on gut strings, it's very hard to not only keep those strings in tune, but then to to not pop them because it's it's his pinion testing. So, you know, at any given moment, if you don't take care of them correctly, you can pop them right there on, on the gig. Um, now, he's also, coincidentally, he's related to Detroit bassist Doug Watkins, which is his first, one of his first cousins. And Doug Watkins is a bass player that was notably known for playing with Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers in the, in the mid-50s. He wasn't as, per se, you would say popular. I mean, he was well known, he was a very well known bassist. He wasn't as popular as Paul Chambers, but he held his own and both of them came up in that era, especially through the Cast Tech High School. Um, eventually, PC decided to say, you know, I've soaked up all this Detroit soul let me go ahead and take my talents up to NY to the Big Apple. So in 1954, moved to New York City, where he became one of the top bases on the scene. He started working with Adam uh, Peppers and Pepper Adams, excuse me, and uh, he started work, work, working with Paul Quinette and all of these different groups. And eventually, he ended up meeting, I believe, through Jackie McLean. He ended up meeting Miles Davis, and at that moment, that was an essential moment in history for jazz when the two of them met because at this time, Miles was starting to come up. Prior to this, Miles was coming up under Red Rodney. He was coming up uh, playing, working with Charlie Parker. You know, he was a young man that was studying a lot of this music. He had also, prior to this time, worked with Gil Evans and came out with the cool, uh, Bertha Cool series. So now he's a prominent figure on his own. He's starting to make a name for himself. You want to put a group together. And so then he put together one of the greatest combinations of quintets of all time. And I'm speaking about the Miles Davis Quintet. And he became the household basis for that group for the entire duration that Miles had that first wave before he switched in the 60s. And so you had a switch between uh, drummers and pianists. So you had uh, Red Garland playing with them uh, originally, and then Witten Kelly. And then when he did the Kind of Blue, he switched it up. He had some featuring uh, Witten Kelly, and then he had some with Bill Evans. But essentially, the Red Garland is original member of that first rhythm section. Then you have Philly uh, Philly Joe Jones on drums, on drum set, a cab out of Philly. And so now you have this core rhythm section that Miles is like, oh my God, I found the missing puzzle. I found the piece to the missing puzzle. And this is what created all of these records, as I mentioned here. He spent eight years as a bassist in the Miles Davis Quintet, recorded these classic albums such as Cooking, Relaxing, Steaming, Working. I mean, these are the these are the first 
Jazz 101 records you go to when you first get into school or when you first want to learn how to play jazz or swing in a small group setting and you need something that's easy to follow and understand what's happening musically, you refer to these records right here, okay? And he was probably the most, uh, and he had the most uh, solo out, and, and he was featured on the most solo sold out album of all time, which was kind of blue. And the way Paul Chambers set up So What, that revolutionized everything. You know, now we have, well, wait, the bass player can actually hold the melody for the entire song, and we can make the whole song two notes based around the bass player's melody, his bass line, that's ingenious. Come on, that's beautiful stuff. He recorded nine albums as a band leader in, in the 50s. Um, he led wonderful groups. He played with some fantastic players, and we're gonna get a chance to listen to some of those, uh, some of those examples. One thing I loved about Paul Chambers uh, is his ear. He had a way of hearing inside of the music so if let's say for instance if miles was playing a solo he would find a way to walk a bass line that not only enhances whatever miles is playing but there's you can literally and i now that i'm i i, I guess I'm, I'm more mature in my ears to understand this but you can hear the conversation you can hear his bass line having a conversation with whatever the soloist is it's amazing how Back then, he was that advanced, and he was that advanced and, and that and intelligent to think that uh, forward thinking, to hear changes like that, to hear his bass lines like that. So this is something that I, I loved and I studied uh, immensely in, in his playing. When I was in ninth grade, he was the first bass player that was introduced to me. My band teacher, Mr. Robert Griffin from Blake High School down in Tampa, he came to me uh, the second week of band, uh, jazz band in ninth grade. He said, Brandon, do you know a trumpeter named Miles Davis? And I was like, yeah, I've heard of him. He's like, all right, I want you to listen to this album. And he gave me a CD. Now, this is back when we used to have CDs. And he actually gave me the CD. So it's called Kind of Blue. I want you to listen to this album. There's a bass player on here. His name is Paul Chambers. He is the guy that you want to try your best to come as close to sounding like. Now, at that time, as a rookie, when I say a rookie, this is me like knowing nothing about jazz other than what my grandparents played around me. Nothing, studied nothing. I'm thinking, okay, he wants me to sound like him, so I'm gonna try to sound like him. Not understanding what he meant was, you need to hear his feel, listen to his feel, understand how he approaches the bass when he plays jazz. Then you will understand what to do when you play jazz. Now, I was 14 when I first heard this album, so I didn't understand that concept. All I was told was listen to it and try to sound like him. So I listened to it over and over and over and over and over. And eventually, what came to mind was, I said, wow, now, I see what he's talking about. The sound, it's like, it's so distinctive. And that's something that I appreciate and I love about him. 
Um, he was one of the most recorded bases in the 50s. He played with a lot of groups. He's on a lot of recordings. But essentially, his work with Coltrane, his work with Miles Davis, his work with Pepper Adams, um, he he did a lot of a great, he, even when he, he played on the Alberto Cool, and that, all of that music was really wonderful, like, that he came out with in the 50s that somebody of his nature could just stand out from everybody else that was happening during that time frame okay unfortunately he was one of those greats that died young and due to drug and uh, alcohol abuse he died of tuberculosis in 1969 but he's forever a the goat and a legend because of all of the great literature and and records that he left behind so here are some of the things that I actually love about PC and, and that I, I greatly appreciate about his playing and who he is. Um, I love his blues influence sound. He, coming from Detroit, you can tell he has, he has that soul deeply rooted in him. And, you know, somebody, that, that's not something that you can just pick up and, and, and I can teach that to somebody. I tell my jazz students all the time, I cannot teach you feel. That's something that you have to grow into on your in your own space. That comes from listening. Really, really what we call engaged listening. Being very tentative to what you're, uh, being intentional, what you're listening to. So you, so you can really soak in that information. And so when I listen to PC play, even in his bass lines, it's so bluesy. It's hard for you not to just be like, man, like this is so hip. Like it, for, for, for an instrument that is not meant to sound the way it spoke, the way he makes it sound, that's remarkable, that's miraculous. I cannot believe that you can even do something as such and still have that presence that lower end presence so i love that he always in 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 infuses blues which is kind of the original in its origins of jazz you know we go all the way back to ragtime you know new orleans and then we go into the swing era i mean all these things are, he's bringing in past influences um i love that he has the ability to execute rhythmic displacement so if you listen to pc solo he plays a lot of eighth notes and sometimes you'll you'll find these transcriptions online of paul chambers and then you'll look at the transcription and then you'll listen to him and you like was that a triplet eighth note or eighth note and then like you hear it again and you're like nah that's definitely an eighth note but the way he displaced the eighth note like in that space makes it feel as though he's playing a triplet i actually and not until recently, when I say recently, I would say about within the last four or five years that I came to that conclusion. I said, man, a lot of times Paul Chambers would play eighth notes, but the way he's articulating those eighth notes, he's displacing them and making it sound as though he's playing like eighth note triplets, like or like a quarter note triplet or quarter two quarter note triplet with an eighth attached eight no triple attached to it like it's crazy like how it sounds he makes it sound like that even though when you write it out it might be like three eighth no triplets you know but it's the way he displays it and it makes it sounds more rhythmically uh uh interesting than just doing 
do 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 he might go do 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 you know where he might just lay back on the eighth note but not necessarily dig into it a little bit you know so that's something that i learned that i was like wow that's a very distinctive concept that he innovated because a lot of bass players were not doing it. They were doing kind of like the Jimmy Blanton Mill hitting style was very straight. You know, any of that kind of stuff. The Bob Haggard, you know, these guys who were solo and they would play really virtuosically up and down the bass. But that's not, that was, that wasn't his thing. It was, but not to that extent. Um, I like the way he used uh, the usage of the chromatic scale. So everybody that knows PC knows he would use chromatic on everything, bass lines, solo, everything, even in the even in the head, he would do chromatic ups. And that was a concept of his, but he knew how to tastefully use it without it sounding wrong. And if he did do it wrong, somebody in the band was mature enough to adjust to make it fit and make it sound right and that that concept is very hard to do it's a very hard concept to do um using that chromatic scale in his solos made it more interesting because he would build tension which i loved um and it also it created this dialogue that you know he he knew how to get in and out like he could go out of the changes but he can come back in um of course, his triplet feel. He had a wonderful triplet feel every time he solo, even in his walking line. Like it was always very present when he do triplets. The triplets is what he's known for. That's like a PC concept. Um, he had very extensive bebop language. Again, his adolescent years were probably during the era of the of the very beginning years of bebop so that sound was very brand new it was exciting so imagine him as a kid hearing this for the first time he's like man this ain't never happened before this is great now he's grown into a space where he actually had the opportunity so when he was a teenager he got the gig uh with pianist barry harris and and trumpeter dad jones dad jones you know he got the he got to play with these guys and gig with them on a regular basis when he was in detroit and he's learning this language right as a kid he's growing up in that era that was what was normal so for him to have that kind of extensive language and hear hear like horn players i love that uh he had clarity in his solos and bass lines uh innovative concepts in his walking lines he had the bounce in his bass playing now well, let me explain to everybody what i mean about the bounce now, all my bass players out there that know, when you hear a really hip bass player on upright, when you hear that, it just, it feels good. I'm gonna name two bass players that I always think like that. Reginald Veal and Rodney Whittaker. Those two bass players come to mind because every time I've ever heard them play bass, and you hear that, you hear that bounce. My teacher, Rodney Jordan, he has that same approach. Even to, to some extent, people have expressed that to me about what, the way I play. They're like, you have this bounce in your playing. I actually adapted that concept 
from Paul Chambers because when every time I hear Paul Chambers play, there's a bounce in his playing that feels like the band is like doing this. And it's 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 like not not rushing, but his hand is behind the back of the band and he's keeping his hand there and he's just slowly moving at the tempo, wherever the tempo is. And if the band tries to do this, he just stays there. He doesn't move. And that, that bounce keeps it propelling like that. That is a concept that all bass players should try to adapt in their playing. And that's something that Paul Chambers does very, very well. Uh, he did very well. Um, he was a ma he had major contributions as a supporting member of the group. Uh, he wasn't just the bass player, you know. He can step in, you know, if you listen to Miles' version of Olio, when them two are just playing at the very beginning, just bass and trumpet. He can hold his own. He's like, I don't need no piano. My bass lines are just fine. You know, he knows how to keep the rhythm section intact. You know, there's no holes. There's no air coming in through the band. It's, it's all tight, uh, uh, tightly uh, put together. You know what I'm saying? And then also, he knows how, he knows when to pull back. He knows when to give room and let you know, people do their thing. You know, that's why I love those records, steaming, cooking, relaxing, and working. Man, the way he sits with the band and just let Miles does what he do, that, you know, that, that's a supporting role. He knows when to be the leader and take the lead, and he knows when to say, hey, I'm going to just lay it down. That's what I'm supposed to do. And that's another concept that I've adapted that I love about his playing. Um, he's a master at the jazz bowing technique. So he's one of the great folks that people go to when they want to hear Arco, jazz Arco. And it's not it's not done often. A lot of people don't do it as often. I mean, obviously there's bass players these days now that have figured out a way to, to, to work at it and master it now. And you have more folks who are doing more Arco solos. But it's not something that is easily done. And when you do do it, it has to be tasteful. And you have to be really, you have to have really great technique in your left hand in order to do the things that you would do just pizzicato. So he, he has found, and because of his upbringing in the symphony and in, in the classical realm, that has helped this technique, which he's inspired me to stay playing classical music because it's helped my technique and it's helped me with a lot of things that I can do faster when I pizzicato. And he's easy, he's easy to follow along harmonically. You know, when you listen to his walking bass lines, you can hear his notes. You know, obviously, you got to think about the time frame when these recordings came out. So that plays in the factor. But you can hear the clarity in his notes. And that's what I mean by that bounce. It, it, it cuts in through, it cuts through so well through the band that every single pitch is coming into your ear. You can hear it with clarity. So I love that about PC. So what I like to do now, I like to play some examples and, and talk about some of my favorite, uh, favorite recordings. Some of my favorite recordings uh, of pizzicato solo, solos that he's taken. And these are some solos that I've actually learned and transcribed myself when I was in school. And then these are some solos that I came across on my own, just research, just checking out his music. And, you know, I was like, wow, okay, this is fire. I'm going to transcribe this and I'm going to use all of this stuff. And one thing I would say with PC, like he... I, I enjoyed that you could tell, you you could tell he loved playing bass. Like you can hear it in his playing. Like 
just the way he would just connect with the band. It just like every time the band starts cooking, it's just like, man, they are steaming. You know, like that's why these titles of these albums, because Miles knew when he went back and listened to it, he's like, man, this is cooking. Man, this is steaming. Man, we working on this one. Yeah, this is relaxing. I like this. Dude, that, I, I really believe that's how he came up with those titles. Like he just was like, you know what? This it's, it's the feeling, you know, and that's why I think jazz is a feeling, and Paul Chambers embodies that. So, here's some of my favorite, uh, top favorite uh, PC Pizzicato Pizzicato solo features. So this first one is called Paul's Pal off of Tender Madness by Sonny Robbins. Now. There's a backstory behind this one. This particular record, I was introduced to this album in college my freshman year. It was one of the required albums that the Bay Studio is given. We're given two albums a semester. My first album was Tenor Madness, and then my second album, believe it or not, was Money Jungle uh, by Duke Ellington. So I, I, was, I had two records that I had to listen to. Not necessarily work on, but just listen to them. My teacher was like, I want you to listen to them the whole semester. Just listen to them. Get the feel of it. Listen to it. Take information, etc." And as I'm listening to Tender Madness, I came across Paul's Pow. And I loved the melody, but I loved how my I had never heard a bass player. And I've heard Paul in the past, you know, just but I had only listened to him on Kind of Blue and uh, Blue Train, which we'll get to. And this particular record i was like wait man he sounds super melodic like i hadn't i hadn't heard him in that context where it was like very melodic and i was like you know because it's in a major key this song is in a major key um and so that's this is one of my favorite solos that i got to learn nice you just transcribed it on my own the next one is uh blue train you know the blues off of John Coltrane's album, self-titled uh, Blue Train. And this particular one was, a, his solo on this was the first time I actually figured out the usage of triplets, because he plays a lot of triplets on this, on, this, uh, on this solo, and it's very bluesy. So as I mentioned earlier, that some of the things that I liked was how he was able to infuse blues and those triplet figures at the same time. I hadn't really heard any bass players do that. Um, the second one, a uh, third one is called Blue Spring Shuffle off of Kenny Dorham, trumpeter Kenny Dorham, uh, Quiet Kenny. Now, this solo is killing. And he actually plays the head uh, with Kenny right before his solo. I didn't realize that that's what they were doing. I thought it was part of his solo going into another one until I went back and I said, oh, wait, he's like, that's the head of the song. Oh, that's him. So that's another concept that I thought, like, wow, these guys figured out a way to arrange a bass player to go into his solo his or her solo so that i thought that's cool i thought that was really dope um the next one is a song that i learned in grad school which was one of the hardest paul chamber songs i learned on bass which was called it's called visitation um off the album chambers music um off of one of his records that he recorded and then the last one is you'd be so nice to come home to i love this standard it's a great standard that paul chambers loved playing standards that was his thing. He loved playing on these great American songbook uh, uh, standards that a lot of these jazz musicians made popular. And this song is featured off of his album Based on Top. So what I'm gonna do is just play some of his solos so you can kind of hear what, what, what I'm talking about. We're gonna start with the first one here uh, with Sonny Rollins, Paul's Powell. Uh, this album featured uh, 
Coltrane, the feature Red Garland, Paul Chambers, and Philly Joe Jones. Now, what's funny about this is that this album has the same rhythm section as the original Miles Davis Quintet. So as I stated earlier, when Miles figured out, like, hold up, this is the missing piece to the, ah, yeah, there it is. And Coltrane, obviously, who was part of that group as well, the original quintet, this is a monumental moment. You know, this is when everything was glued together. This is when jazz really took off in it and it really changed forever. So I'm just going to play a little bit of his solo here. And let me make sure that my sound, yep, it's shared. And here we go. <laughs> the way he plays his two beat paul chambers had one of the best two beat, two feels in jazz jazz bass history i mean his feel it you can, he, he fills up so much space just with his notes not only his note choice but the way he attacks the string i'm gonna fast forward a little bit close to his solo here um about right here here we go <laughs> You know what I love about it is he he would quote melodies in his in his solo. Um, he quoted he, he quoted a a little a, a little bit of um, our love is here to stay, and I heard the back end of that solo, uh, back end of the melody in his solo, and I was like, oh man, it's so great. So this next solo here uh, comes off of John Coltrane's Blue Train. And this album was a monumental classic. I mean, you have Lee Morgan, Curtis Fuller, Kenny Drew on piano, Paul Chambers, and Philly Joe Jones. Philly Joe and Paul PC are like Batman and Robin. I mean, they're like the dynamic duo. And so his particular solo here um, is one that not only is super bluesy, but you're going to hear not that the bluesy and triplet feels that I was referring to earlier. So 
let's go ahead and gonna fast forward here to top of his solo and here we go. So you see in that solo, it's very not only bluesy, but it's super triple, triplet feel. And that was one of them solos where it was hard for me to transcribe. I transcribed that one when I was, uh, yeah, at the end of my freshman year in, my, my, in college. And that was a hard solo for me to do at that time because I wasn't used to playing triplets. And so it was like, man, I can't hear, I cannot hear how he's doing this. And it just, I just had to keep listening, keep listening. And now I have figured it out. And I was like, oh, okay, this is how he's doing it. And that was, and he would mask those kind of, those kind of elements. Um, this next one here, I'm only going to play uh, the beginning of his solo. I'll play the, uh, the back end of the melody and his first beginning of his solo. So this song, Visitation, is off of his album, Chambers Music. Uh, features John Coltrane, Pepper Adams on Barry Sachs, Curtis Fuller on trombone, Kenny Drew on piano. Uh, also, Ronald Alexander was also featured on this album as well. PC uh, himself, and then, of course, his main man, Philly Joe Jones on drum set. Now, this song right here is like a rite of passage on bass. It's like playing Oscar Pettiford's song, Trickatism. It's one of those songs where, like, if you can do this on bass, like you solid, like it not not that you not that you suck or anything, but it's just it, it, you feel like okay, I am a bassist because this is a super bass heavy song. Okay, so I'm gonna play a little bit of it, and this is a uh, one of the songs that helped me really define the, the the literature and the dexterity of Paul Chambers in my playing. And if we can. Uh... Uh-oh. Might be having some. Alright. Might have some audio issue on this one, everyone. Sorry about that. I'll go ahead and move on for this one. We'll go ahead and jump to Blue Spring Shuffle. Um uh, this song particularly here, Kenny uh, uh Kenny Dorm. He was also a member that played with Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers as well in the 50s. And he had some incredible solo albums. This particular record is one of my favorite, favorite, favorite trumpet albums. Uh, Kenny, uh, Kenny Dorham was definitely somebody that was slept on and underrated, and I loved his playing. Uh, this particular song, Blue Spring Shuffle, is all blues. Uh, Kenny Dorham on trumpet, Tommy Flanagan on piano, who also was on Giant Steps with Coltrane, uh, PC on bass, and Art Taylor on drum set. And if you guys know Notes and Tones, that was a book that Art Taylor wrote. Um, and in the experience of all of all of his all of his in, um, encounters with different 
famous jazz musicians. It's a great book to have in your in your archives if you don't have that. But I would love to play part of uh, this solo here. And this is one of my favorite solos because it's just like bluesy all over the place. So let's check a little, let's check this out. Uh, actually, I'm gonna play a little bit of the beginning. Nobody didn't catch that early. The triplet, the deeper do deeper do deeper do deeper do down. That right there, nobody was playing stuff like that in that time period. This was like in around 1956, 57. Nobody was doing them kind of triplets, at least like that. And so he had his own way. He created his own style of the way he would play triplets, which is why I loved hearing PC do that. So all right, here we go. This is part of his solo here. blues and them triplets that's a very distinctive pc sound and then last but not least i want to just play very briefly uh, a little bit of his solo uh from you'd be so nice to come home to um he this is off of his self-entire album based on top uh one of my favorite paul chamber albums this album was a record that i studied towards the end of my college years in undergrad and just the playing on here is just immaculate. Like, I, it was the first time I got to hear a bass player like lead a band and be on the forefront, like be the main presence of the record, you know, centered around him. And so that was very inspiring for me to start writing my own material. And so I really like this standard that he uh, that he plays on this. And so um, let's go ahead and fast forward some of this, check some of this out. play a little bit of that melody here.
Now, I'm only wanted to play the melody. He does take a solo right after that. But Paul Chambers was one of the few bass players that I actually, that inspired me to just want to learn melodies on bass. Because I'm like, man, he plays melodies so well, not only in tune, but he plays them exactly like a horn. Like, Oscar Pettiford was another bass player like that, that had the, had a way of playing melodies like a horn player. Ray Brown as well. These guys just had a way of, when they played melodies, it just sounds like you're listening to a horn player. And he was very, he was he, he did a very great job at executing these kind of feelings. And so I wanted to just showcase that, just how someone who can take the forefront, he's like, I don't need the horn, a sax player to play the melody. I can play the melody. And he played it just like as if he was listening. If you hear some of the things, the way he was playing it, it sounds exactly as if it was a, a horn player playing the melody. So it's great. Um, these are my top four. And they, these are actually literally my top four favorite Arco solos. Now, PC was a master at Arco soloing. Um, one of the most famous recordings that uh, Arco solos he did was on Coltrane's Blue Train uh, album, uh, Moments Notice. And this song, I mean, he ripped on this one. Uh, there's a live version of him playing Green Dolphin Street with the Coltrane Quartet in Germany in 1960, where he takes a very, very accurate, fast Arco solo over Green, uh, uh, over the standard Green Dolphin Street. Then you listen to the theme, which is kind of like uh, a kind of like an interlude that people use in between sets or at the end of sets. Uh, Blakey used to use this at the end of a lot of his charts, and it has rhythm changes. Uh, basically, it's basically rhythm changes, and he's arcoing the melody and he's taking an arco solo. And this is what featuring Kenny Burst, uh, Burrow, who's a, a guitar player. And then yesterday, uh, this is featuring kind of like a, a rubato arco style, where then he takes a full-on arco solo. And one thing he wanted to showcase was that, hey, not only that bass players can pizzicato, but we can arco in the style of jazz as well. We don't always have to play classical, which is what I loved about him because that made him stand out a lot. Okay, so let's check out some of these, uh, some of these solos here. And speeding this up. Go to all right here. to sound that clear and arco like that man that's amazing like I, I still to this day i'm trying to get that kind of clarity when i arco and try to take arco solos it's it's hard to do because you're physically having to do both at the same time your left and your right and it, it, this has to be solid otherwise it's nothing's gonna sound great 
Here's this. Here's another solo that features the John Coltrane Quartet, uh, Witt and Kelly on piano, Jimmy Cobb on drums. So this is the group that he got to play on, play with on Kinda Blue. And this rhythm section supported Coltrane in this recording, this clip here. And you can see Witt and Kelly looking at PC like, hmm, okay, I see what you're doing there, sir. Check this one out. talk about some fire like just clear and just the way the way he can articulate his notes Arco is amazing like it's so so much clarity here's him playing the theme and rhythm changes this album again is on chamber music and I like the way that he now takes away uh, the accompaniment melody from the main instrument and now he plays it alongside with the guitar player and you can hear him doing the arco melody with the arco solo right afterwards so let's listen to a little bit of this So what you hear right there, man, is just not only good, clear bass, bass lines, but just the blues and the language. He's playing that jazz language. He's quoting a lot of the melody. He's playing a lot of blues stuff. He's, he's playing a lot of uh, enclosures, which, which are 
different concepts, improvisational concepts. And these are things that he would just do on the fly. A lot of bass players weren't doing that during this time frame. And then uh, lastly, just a little bit of, of yesterday, and this is fe featured on that same album based on top. I just love the way he sounds on this. Just the way that he, again, he brings out the melody. It makes it sound, uh, brings the emotional side out of the melody. That's what I really enjoy about this particular version. Now I'm just gonna play a little bit of that for you real quickly. I just wanted to play a little bit of that for you. This is some, that's also the reason why I mentioned I love the clarity in his arco. It's, it's, uh, to me, if I had to choose, if someone, if someone has actually asked me this, like, what do you, when you prefer listening to bass player arco or pizzicato, I say, actually, I enjoy listening to arco solo because that tells me if that bass player, what kind of technique that bass player has. Because if you can hear everything crystal clear, like, I can't imagine what it would sound like if they were playing pizzicato. And Paul Chambers was a master at both of those. He he knew how to utilize his skill set, and he used his classical background in a sense to help him play jazz, not only in tune, but that's probably why a lot of people like playing with him because he had it made his ear a lot more stronger. And so, my final thoughts uh, uh, for today, you know, Paul Chambers is. Considered probably one of the considered one of the most influential and imitative bases in jazz history hands down I haven't met not one Basis on the planet yet who hasn't at least been influenced by Paul Chambers I haven't met at least that does jazz like I haven't met one that hasn't told me they haven't been at some point been influenced um, He's inspired future bases bases after him. I mean Christian McBride always talks about how Paul Chambers is one of those guys that really solidified his grounding you know later on in his playing just the way he would approach the band and how he would support the band um he had the big bouncy sound in his bass lines which i loved 
which is like something that like I think all bass players should strive for. Like if you get that big bouncy sound in your playing, like people always will want to play with you because it, it would just feel good. And that's something that I enjoy when I listen to Paul Chambers. Not not trying to imitate what he's doing, but just listening to his playing. Like I really enjoy that. Um, he has extensive usage of the arco technique. Like he's one of the few basses in jazz history that really there's a lot of recordings of him arcoing. And there's not I mean outside of Ron Carter in the earlier periods, there's not too much recordings. I mean you have Slam Store, Major Holly, Mill Hinton, you have these guys, but a lot of the recordings that Paul Chambers did in the time frame of his life is a significant amount of different features of him arcoing so you can hear the dif you can hear the differentiation of when he's pizzicato versus doing that and he utilized he made both equally well which is why now it's like you have rare rarity of bases who are equally balanced on both electric and double bass and upright so he was he was uh affluent in both areas um, he had a large sound and a very distinctive tone. Like no one else in this planet can it can match that tone and that sound, that big sound that he created. No one. I mean, you can you can try to get that feel behind in your playing, but you can't match that sound. And lastly, the reason why I love Paul Chambers so much is he's original. There's nobody else like him, in jazz, and, and especially in that period of history of jazz, there's no other bass player like him. You cannot say, oh, he sounds like this person or he sounds like that person. He doesn't. He sounds just like himself, which is what I really respect and I love about his playing. So um, that's my those are my final thoughts. And those are the reasons why I, I, I really dig PC um, overall. He's always going to be at the top three of my top three list of all time favorite bass players. Hands down. Hands down. Awesome. Awesome. Man. What a wealth of information you've shared with us about Paul Chambers today. Professor, professor. <laughs> now, I think you answered most of the questions that came in. Um, I guess one that I'll share with you is that other okay. musicians recognize he was ahead of his time, you know, or would you say he set the standard for his peers during that time? Because, you know, a lot of times we hear musicians like this people didn't really appreciate them during that time mm -hmm. but after they're gone it's like oh man they were so amazing so right. what was the climate when this new sound was coming out did they did they recognize the greatness of it or did they just say ah oh, it's just something different yeah man so like to to be quite frank you know i i would say that everybody in that time period in that era recognized that paul chambers was the man I mean, if you go, you can just go on Wikipedia. You can look at his discography. I mean, you can, I mean, he only has nine albums under his name, but if you see all the albums he was featured on, that list is pretty long. It's pretty extensive. And that's what I'm talking about. Like, there were other bass players in that time period that was profoundly, like, making impactful, revolutionary changes. Mingus is one of those bases. Ray Brown was one of those bases. Percy Heath, who a lot of people don't talk about as much, who was with the Modern Jazz Quartet, was hugely significant. I wrote about Percy Heath in my in my dissertation in my uh, my comprehensive exam in grad school. 
because I felt like he was one of those bases in the 50s, in the early 50s that was slept on because of his association with Milt Jackson and John Lewis. You know, like that that group was pro that that group was revolutionary. I mean, the the, the musicians of this time period that, you know, rest in peace to Chick Corea who would compose, write these through composed pieces, these lavish pieces that he wrote later on. I mean, John Lewis was doing that well before then. It was and it wasn't really accepted because that cool Bertha Cool era was happening with Miles. And so you got these bass players who would really Pro, profoundly like changing things and they knew who was they knew who was who was hip and it was in during that time period and in the mid 50s to late 50s Paul Chambers was the guy and so these guys knew he they knew the impact and influence he had I mean you can hear it you can hear it the way Reggie Workman even uh when Doug Watkins later on like you can hear these guys were checking each other out so yes, I, I definitely know that I would say he definitely Im influenced the people of his around him. Okay. Now, question about his Arco. Uh, I know we mentioned that a lot, how, um, how clear and how unique his Arco, uh, aside from his pizzicato, mm -hmm. he said that he had a classical background. So how extensive was his classical training? Do you did you do any research on that or could you share yeah so so they so the detroit symphony at the time um was probably one of the only few when i say few i ain't I, it ain't a lot <laughs> but in that time frame that they had integrated symphonies but the air but the but the area that paul chambers grew up in it was an all-black group so what was hip was that the training he was get were from black musicians. And so I think it's important to note note that, you know, that he had he had he had this extensive training, but it was from people that looked like him too. And even from the principal basis who was I mean that person wasn't black, but like that at that time frame, we all know that Detroit musically was starting to change it was like the, it was like the the first i would say it was the first breaking ground you know where a black entertainment was really popular you know getting popular you know in terms of like commercial music because jazz was commercial in in the, the 30s and 40s but when the 50s and 60s roll around now we have these subgenres these little subgenres popping out that are spawning out right and so him being in the midst of all of that, that Arco, that Arco, that classic, I'm sorry, that, that classical training that he received, um, uh, sorry, that, uh, somebody's called, sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, the, the classical training that he received, you know, was very beneficial for him. You know, that, that, that training that he received was, that, that was the staple, that was the grounding that he needed. You know what I'm saying? Like he needed that. He needed that presence in that place to, um, to to really solidify the, the things that he was able to do later on. You know, and the people that was there that was giving him that 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 skill set. You know, they probably didn't know that at the time, but he was taking that same skill set and he was using it on gigs when he was playing with Barry Harris. So. My my research from reading about his classical background is when he switched from saxophone to bass, 
it made sense for him. Like that that transfer, it, it was like a it was, that transfer was easy, and because he had that 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 phrasing, that mindset already as a horn player, picking up the base was a lot easier for him. As you can see in videos, we see him play. It looks very easy for him when he plays. So um, I, I do believe that had he not had that background, it would it would sound different. He would sound a lot differently, for sure. Well, certainly, you know, we can hear all of those different elements and his playing the classical and the jazz and, and, and this is melodic lines. And he is one of the greats. And I know he's inspired so many people with his plan. Mm-hmm. And there's only one, Mr. PC. Only one. <laughs> the only one. So we want to thank you, Professor Brandon Rodgers. Thank Rob. you. We appreciate the great research that you've shared today. Um, and I know whether you're a seasoned musician or a beginner to this music we call jazz, I know you can really take a lot from uh, this conversation today. And being that you're taking a lot today, we're, we're hoping that you'll share a lot, share with someone else that um, you heard some great things today and you learned right. something from the professor. And um, we want you to stay tuned for the up and coming sessions. You can always go to www.clearwaterjazz.com slash education mm-hmm. and check out the upcoming sessions and just continue to tell others about this beautiful music we call jazz. Thank you again, Professor. I am your guest host, Michael Canodal, and we're going to see you on the next one. Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. Thank Talk to you all later. Thank you for listening to Clearwater Jazz Holidays, Young Lions Jazz Master Virtual Sessions. Thank you to our friends at Marine Max Clearwater for helping to present this podcast series. To learn more about the Clearwater Jazz Holiday Annual Festival tradition, other special events throughout the year, and our year-round education and outreach, please visit clearwaterjazz.com.